You're listening to Changemaker. Ideas on social impact. Lessons on life and business. Stories from people making a difference. I'm Jackie Biederman. There's a corner store by my house that's a revolving door. We've had a bakery, a thrift store, a restaurant, and now it's a kickboxing studio. I've driven by it a couple times when the new owners come in, and they're starting to remodel, and they're really excited to make it their own. But they know the reality. No other business has survived here more than two years. But they're thinking, my idea is different. And a lot of times that idea and dream lives in our heads. That is until we put the open sign in the window and unlock the front door. Then it's real. What if no one comes? This is vulnerability. It's letting go of control, putting ourselves out there, and being open to what happens. It could be heartbreak, embarrassment, or just hard. But it also could be really good. And vulnerability is behind every new idea, everything. Your favorite songs, your favorite books, the car you drive, they were never a sure thing. So as entrepreneurs, The greater the risks, the bigger the ideas, the more people we reach, the more vulnerable we become. So you can see where this episode is going. On today's show, stories about vulnerability. We're all part of a lottery. Our race, gender, where we're born, our class. These factors, in large part, determine what opportunities we have. I want to tell you about someone named Mahesh. She was born a Dalit in India. And within the social hierarchy known as the Hindu caste system, Dalits are considered below it. For centuries, they've been oppressed people, outcasts of society, labeled as less than and unclean. Mahesh was part of the untouchables. Her kind of trajectory in life was that she would start working very young in order to help bring income into the family. Um, she probably wouldn't finish her education. She'd you know, get married fairly young, probably around 15 or 16. And, you know, and, and that's kind of it. She, she has some children and that cycle continues. But instead, our partner program, Shanti Bhavan in India, started working with her when she was about four. Um, and she started going to boarding school. And by the time she was 18, she had this huge, huge love of science and, and education in general. So against the odds, Mahesh became the first in her family to graduate from high school. Then she earned a college degree in genetics and biotechnology. She was especially interested in genetics. And so her family, her brothers, her mom, her uncles said, you know what, Like you have spent all of this all of this time studying and what you really want to do is work in genetics, you need to go get your master's. And they actually pulled together to get the loans and get the money from friends and relatives to send her for her master's degree. To know that the trajectory of her life has changed because because she was given a shot at an education and then she was able to take that shot and turn it into this amazing opportunity to honestly, to change the world. She's working on how to make how to make drugs, how to make medicine more effective based on your own genetic history. And so that's, that's really what She's the First is about. You know, it's not a handout. You know, the opportunity for an education is 
what you make of it. And what we find is that these girls are so hungry for that opportunity and they're so excited and so ready to make something out of that opportunity that they, they go ahead and blow us away all the time. Mahesh is not untouchable. She's unstoppable. Meet Kristen Brandt. I'm Kristen Brandt. I'm the co-founder and chief programs officer at She's the First. Kristen and She's the First co-founder Tammy Tibbetts were the first in their families to go to college. They felt fortunate for the opportunity because they realized a lot of girls and women around the world aren't so lucky. And after doing some research, they discovered that a girl's education is one of the easiest ways to increase opportunities for equality. Get this. According to the World Economic Forum, educating girls leads to a reduction in child marriage and early pregnancies, and it also leads to an increase in income. When women work, they invest about 90% of their income back into their families. And education empowers women to become leaders and change their communities for the better. So Kristen and Tammy wanted to do something, something that could support girls' education, and they enlisted the help of ramen-eating penny pinchers, college students. She can be the first in her family to graduate from school. She could be the first female president of her country. She She's the first started with this YouTube America. video, college students holding up pictures of girls who could be the first in their families to do amazing things. This moved people to make donations, which Kristen and Tammy connected to international organizations that are locally supporting girls' education. This is still the model today, and in addition to the individual donations, She's the First receives corporate and foundation contributions. In 2016, they raised over $1 million. And since 2010, when they started, they've supported over 900 scholars, including Mahesh. So it started with a simple YouTube video. And I wanted to know from Kristen how this movement caught on. I think the most important thing is that we talked directly to our audience, always. Um, you know, that first YouTube video, it was geared toward people our own age. And so the script for it was very easy. You know, there were a lot of iterations. There was a lot of that. But it's easy to write because you're writing to your friends, really. We just we talked to them in the way that we wanted to be talked to. And I think, you know, the other thing is we didn't set out to start a movement. We, we saw that there was this issue that if people knew about it, they would really care about it. And we saw that there wasn't really anyone connecting the dots for them. There wasn't anyone saying, hey, if gender equality and girls empowerment, girls education are important to you, here's, here's what you can do as someone who is, you know, in college, who doesn't have a lot of spare change, who all of those things. Um, a lot of what happened with She's the First was just that, you know, we hit on that thing that a lot of people really did care about and didn't know what to do with. And when you have one of those ideas, you'll find that the people around you start getting excited. And when they do, that's when you know, okay, now I can run with this. So college students were the first to get excited. They were a part of something bigger. And this led to the formation of She's the First Campus Chapters, developing student leaders and advocates for education equality. Today, there are over 225 chapters internationally. But one thing that I loved about this idea is that it wasn't Kristen's at all. 
So our very first campus chapter was at Syracuse University, where where I was studying at the time. Um, but it, it really came about because there were a few other students on campus who really wanted to get involved. And I was at this point where I was like, okay, well, I have so much happening with the, the kind of headquarters of She's the First International, She's the First in this, this idea, that I don't know if I can put together all of these on-campus events, but if you want to do that, I mean, we could have a campus chapter. And they actually, Chelsea, um, one of the girls in particular, totally jumped on it and started creating, you know, meetings and an e-board <laughs> and oh, wow. systematizing this thing. Yeah. And so in a way, kind of like a lot of She's the First, what we found was that we harnessed other people's excitement right so we had these other students or i had these other students at syracuse who were so excited about it um and i i guess you know i could have i could have said okay yes i'll i'll go ahead and start a campus chapter for you i will set this up i'll make it happen and and we can move from there or i could have said you know no i'm too busy like forget about it um but that's you know luckily not the not the tack i took and and partially by luck, I think, um, what I what I did say was, you know, go for it. And they did. And I think a lot of the success of She's the First has been simply based on the fact that when people come to us and they're excited about what we do and they, they have an idea for how to get involved, we tend to say yes. And, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they get a little they get a little territorial about what they do and about their project um, because it's a scary thing to open up this kind of baby project of yours that you you work so hard on to the the ideas and the whims of other people. But so many of our best ideas have not been our own ideas. <laughs> They've mm. come from other people who are really excited about what we do. So the whole topic for this episode is vulnerability. And this is vulnerability. With a startup, you have a vision. You've built an idea. It's your baby. And inviting someone else to participate means that it will change. You have to let go of some control. But this can also lead to opportunities. One of the early campus chapters was formed at Notre Dame, and the women's soccer team there wanted to get involved. Their idea was to sell tie-dye cupcakes. Think bright colors swirled together. They're so Instagrammable, right? Yeah. Like they're just so eye-catching. And so within, I think it was a three-day sale, they had raised $900. And now, like you have to remember, this is like our first year of real existence. I think we raised a total of $10,000 that year. So $900 is like <laughs> a big deal. That yeah. was a tenth of what we raised all year. And so we went, oh, I guess there's something there. You know, similarly, we have a Sweat for STF campaign that's based on based around exercise because you have a cupcake campaign. You know, you've got to you've got to balance things out a little. <laughs> um, but that was started because people started running races for She's the First and fundraising that way. So more people got involved. She's the First grew, and Kristen's role changed. She's no longer an anonymous college student, but leads thousands of people to help educate and empower girls and women. And this role can sometimes be challenging. I had a Facebook post go viral in early 2016 in which I was, it was the middle of winter and I was on the subway and on the platform and 
this man walking by me, like cat called me and, and basically just said, you know, damn, honey, you've got great legs. Um, and I ignored it and whatever and kept walking. But he then, you know, turned around to follow me and said, you know, didn't you hear me? Like, damn, honey, thank you. Um, and it was it was such a silly thing in that women face so much worse so often. I have had so many like worse encounters than this one, right? Or more difficult encounters or more sexual encounters or more, you know, kind of whatever adjective you want to use. There's been there's been worse and there's been more. But it just it happened that on this particular day I was so done with the bullshit, you know? And and there I was, I was in knee-high boots, like like winter boots and a, a parka down to my knees and a scarf and like I am covered head to toe. And I was just I was like how this is why women get so upset when people say, you know, what was she wearing? Because it doesn't matter. It like it literally doesn't matter. So she had a coworker take a picture and I wrote this post and I in a lot of ways I divide my social media timeline of kind of what I'm free to post and, and how often I post and do before and after this post because it was, you know, I wrote about how insane it is that what she's wearing is ever in the in the conversation. So it got picked up by the Daily Mail, People, Today.com. It was shared on sites in dozens of countries. It was everywhere. Um, and I started getting messages to my inbox. Um, and some of them were amazing, amazing stories of women who shared their stories and and others were, you know, why don't you go kill yourself? Um, mm. You should be you should be happy. Like you're not that attractive anyway. Mm. Um, he was just paying you a compliment or, you know, let me let me just explain to you what he was thinking in that moment or <laughs> kind mm. of all of these these responses that ran the gamut. And I, I actually collected all of them and put them put them on a blog um, so that people could see what it was like when you go viral for a feminist post and what what happens. Um, and that was this really incredible moment that showed me the power, really, of social media and what a voice I had, you know, because I knew that I had a voice and I've been using that voice um, to talk about these issues for a while because not not all women and girls have that opportunity, have that privilege. But after this, I realized like, oh, okay, like when I say something, people might listen. You know, I, I have to consider the fact that a lot of people are looking at this as the words of a, of a leader in this space. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wish that you weren't in this leadership position? I know that sounds kind of awful with, um, with all the work <laughs> that you're doing, but does that thought ever cross your mind, I guess? No, um, because I think I thrive on challenges. I think finding finding problems, finding obstacles, finding challenges, and then figuring out how to get through them, whether they're on an organizational level, on a program level, or on a personal level, that is so invigorating to me, honestly. And so being in a position of leadership allows you to tackle obstacles like nothing else in the world <laughs> will ever do. You know, and it's also, I realize, 
a position that comes with a lot of privilege. Um, the fact that I have a voice that I can use to, you know, ideally make this world a better place and a more equitable place for us all to live. I mean, that's that's huge. And that's a lot of pressure sometimes, right? But for me, I think it's just, it's such such a privilege. I've used that word so many times, but it's true. So that even when it sucks, it's still so good. It's still what I would pick. Leaders are vulnerable. Speaking up takes courage. And not everyone will like what you have to say. But some people listening might be inspired to become leaders themselves. And they might become the first to do something amazing. I'm relying on these girls to change our world. I really believe that they are our best shot at living on a planet that is worth living on. So my name's Jared Yazi. I own OXDX Clothing, which is a graphic design and screen printing business that uh, specializes in helping Native people and bringing about uh, bringing awareness to Native people. So we celebrate culture. I'm Navajo. I'm from Northern Arizona. Uh, more specifically, I'm from Holbrook, AZ. And uh, that's about it. Before Jared started designing T-shirts and clothing, he was on his way to becoming an engineer. So I have one brother that works for NASA as a mechanical engineer. My dad's an engineer, my other brother works in engineering, and then my mom is a math teacher. So it was kind of uh, <laughs> destined for me, I guess, to go out and become an engineer. I never really thought about it. I never thought about uh, being creative um, that way. I just uh, kind of, it was laid out for me that I was going to be, you know, take a math field. So I took the steps to do that. I went to the University of Arizona, had full scholarships. And, you know, they're all based around that I was going to be an engineer. And I suddenly changed that my second year in and I uh, lost all the scholarships. And so it was kind of a hard time after that. I, I left the U of A, started pursuing stuff at the community college, uh, making a lot of shirts at home, like just uh, doing a lot of art at home. I like stencil and graffiti art. So how did that happen? I mean, because the stakes were high for you with giving up scholarships and, you know, taking a totally different direction than what was kind of expected. So, like, how did you come to finally make that decision to leave school and pursue a more creative opportunity? I mean, it was it was a harsh, uh, it was really a tough time. We I was in the, a program with a lot of first-year Native college students, and we were all pursuing stuff. We were going to be great people. I met uh, one of my friends, Mia Henderson. Um, she was from Tuba City, Arizona, and she had an issue with her roommate and ended up getting stabbed to death um, one morning. Oh my gosh, which, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was very, like, we, we were a close, like, uh, group of people, all of us. And I think from there, I just kind of didn't... Um, I don't know. I didn't want to do something I wasn't passionate about. I just, I feel like Mia was going to do so much more. She was going to be like a doctor. She was going to do more than I could ever. I just feel kind of that I owe it to to her to kind of keep 
to do something right all the time and to to not waste time i guess yeah yeah um but it's taken me years to kind of figure that out um at the time it was it was all crazy it was uh i just felt like a failure i kept not you know i wasn't concentrated in school um and coming from a real you know family that expects that higher education to be something it was a tough realization to come to it that I, it wasn't for me um so it was a tough time it was a lot it was a big learning experience and um i think my outlet was poetry and art i did a lot of writing back in the day um went to the community college and took poetry classes took screen printing classes graphic design classes uh video editing and photography and it's really just like i wanted to do what i do now like it's obvious from all those classes that i picked so jared designed his first t-shirts the very first one was for his dream team about 30 of his friends who pre-ordered them from him from here he made a few dozen shirts at a time and kept selling small batches when he could you know i didn't have the scholarships anymore i had to look for a job found a job at a family dollar <laughs> as a cashier which was which was a interesting experience um but yeah it's uh, just from the side of all that i was doing work on the side i was selling at flea markets you know going back to my to the reservation and selling to Navajo people and seeing how they react to my designs and um also selling at powwows local native events and it just kind of grew This was the beginning of OXDX and Jared's t-shirts were a modern way of telling stories lessons that he learned from his elders the beauty of native culture and the struggles that face native americans He mixes in street art and some musical elements to create bold designs And it's not really in his nature to be loud and confrontational. So his art becomes a voice. So I think that was my way of kind of releasing that is through art and through t-shirts like if there's something on a shirt and you know it would be the open conversation for other people to ask about it and for me to talk about it. One issue that he keeps coming back to is about native imagery. How native people are viewed in popular culture. He told me about a design called dehumanizing. It just shows a like a chief image, and his eyes are kind of covered. So dehumanizing is spelled out in logos of sports mascots, and it's just really a comment about how the world looks at Native people and to how we're treated as kind of historical objects instead of real people. And if you don't count people as as real as someone that's living, then uh, you know you're dehumanizing them to and giving other people. you know the ability to to treat them that way as well. Jared is sending a message for change. I never ran out of material because there's just so many things happening and there's so many other things that have happened that people need to be made aware of. A lot of his designs also feature powerful women with inspiration coming from his mom and grandma. They they were the toughest ladies I knew, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was I was talking about my my grandma being like kind of my uh inspiration to fashion it wasn't because she was a fashiony person it was just um she was just an ins- inspirational lady to begin with but she was like the toughest lady i knew i talk about how she used to mix coals so the fire with her hands to make sure it doesn't go out what or she <laughs> yeah she to, or just like flipping tortillas with her hands like <laughs> i i can't even do it i feel all like, <laughs> but um yeah they're just the super tough ladies and um that's how i see them so 
it's it's weird coming into a world that doesn't see women like that all the time or views them sexually or something like that. So yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot of my designs depict powerful women, and that's just um, how we grow up as native native people. So box by box, he sold his shirts, and it wasn't just his friends buying them anymore. OXDX was reaching more people, but this also made Jared more vulnerable. I think that was the toughest part to to learn getting into the business is kind of putting myself out there and to to freely share my art is an option for people to freely voice their opinions <laughs> and especially now in the age of Facebook and Instagram where uh, people are a lot tougher and a lot more vocal on a keyboard uh, you kind of have to have thick skin. A few years ago Jared designed a couple dozen shirts depicting a Navajo code talker. These are U.S. Marines from World War II who used their native language to encrypt communications. Not everyone liked the design, and it was eventually posted with an angry message to a Facebook page with over 40,000 followers. Um, I had tons of messages after that, um, and then like a year later, it's finally getting over it, <laughs> and I found out they have that other messages in your Facebook. <sighs> You know, and yeah. I, I checked that. I shouldn't have, but um, it just kind of brought me back to that point. But yeah, that that was really bad just because it was, it was Native people that were saying it. I was trying to do good work for Navajo people, and to them it wasn't. Um, so at that point I just learned that, you know, some people aren't going to be happy, and some people aren't going to understand what I'm doing. So that was a big lesson, and that was a big kind of like, Heartbreak, I guess. Fortunately, Jared started making connections with other Native designers and found that they shared similar experiences. They were doing something that wasn't exactly traditional. They were bringing out issues that people find controversial. But they could support and encourage each other. Jared told me that art is emotional, so as an artist, he has to take the bad with the good. But he tries to focus on positivity and his goal of raising awareness for important issues. Jared no longer works at Family Dollar because he created a sustainable business model, and his family of engineers and mathematicians have proudly come to see his designs on the runway. Over the past couple of years, some of Jared's designs made their way around the U.S. as part of an exhibit. It's called Native Fashion Now and was put on by the Smithsonian and Peabody Essex Museums. It's the first exhibit that's just like so representative of Native people, especially that are living currently. It's not a museum exhibit about people that have have lived. You know what I mean? It's it's not that we're relics. This is Native fashion of people that are alive and still doing stuff. Being part of the exhibit gave Jared an opportunity to travel around the country and hear other people's stories. So just like going around and visiting all these tribes and hearing all the like different points of view and the different struggles that we're all going on. So it was a, it's a real eye opener. And like we all need each other more than ever, I think. So seeing people come together for something like the Dakota Access Pipeline and protesting it is, is something amazing. Seeing something like Indigenous Peoples Day happening instead of Columbus Day is amazing. And that's all stuff that's happening like right now. Jared is part of a change, he's become a leader. And a lot of people are listening to what he has to say. So I asked him, did that surprise you? Yeah, that always surprises me. I'm the youngest of, <laughs> I'm the youngest <laughs> of my fam, you know. I don't even get, like, you know, fair say at, at my own table or something. 
um, yeah, and that's just kind of what I've been brought up with, you know, kind of a, you know, be humble about what you what you receive. So uh, I never want to put myself in a leading position that I'm doing, you know, this and this and that for Native people. But um, I'm realizing more and more that we do have the opportunity to to say stuff to be heard. So I'm finding that kind of responsibility. Um, I'm, I'm finding it for myself right now that, that, that it's actually a thing. With the open sign in the window and the front door unlocked, we're vulnerable. The future is uncertain and there will be naysayers. But remember that there's people who are listening and your courage, your voice, might be helping to give them a voice too. Thanks for listening to the show. If you want to learn more about Kristen or Jared, go to changemakerpodcast.com. Music is by Weed Rat, Jazar, Josh Woodward, Lee Rosevier, and Josh Harlan. And as always, if you like this episode, please tell one friend about it. It really helps for these awesome stories to spread. I'm Jackie Biederman, and you've been listening to Changemaker. Maker.